I try not to have an ideological view of Karl Marx. Any man who writes as many words as Marx did is bound to be wrong and occasionally right some of the time. Sometimes he's right and wrong at the same time. Marx's oft-quoted line, history repeats itself, first as tragedy, then as farce, is a good example. Sometimes when history repeats itself a second time, it is farcical. But usually when a society repeats the same historic mistake, it is still tragic. A case in point would be the current presidential election in the U.S. Yet again, a specter is haunting the youthful left, the myth that there is no difference between the Republicans and Democrats. A reported one-third of voters, 18 to 29, are searching for a third-party candidate to vote for, or will perhaps simply not vote at all. Once again, older voters are pointing out the obvious, that backing a third-party candidate is throwing away your vote, and because third-party votes almost always come at the expense of the Democrats, it will lead to the election of Donald Trump. That argument won't matter to the young, or not-so-young leftist. They won't mind a Trump presidency because they're sure it will bring the revolution several steps closer. That's a line of reasoning that has been around a long time. I'm voting for John Anderson instead of Jimmy Carter, said an old college friend in 1980. Why, I replied, Reagan will win. Good, it will bring the revolution closer. I hope he's still not waiting. First time is tragedy, second time, third time. The result is still tragic. My friend and I were there the first time, and we didn't even have the vote. Autumn 1968, freshman at Antioch College, Yellow Springs, Ohio, the voting age was still 21, and all an 18-year-old could do was wrap his or her mouth around the word revolution. Yes, there was music in the cafes at night, and revolution in the air. We ached for revolution, the way we ached for sex, hormonally, ignorant of what the act entails when done right. Maybe that's why the term sexual revolution came into being. It was easy to call the great cultural and lifestyle changes of those days a revolution, just as it was easy for Bernie Sanders to call his extraordinary run for the Democratic nomination a revolution. But this deflects people from the real meaning of the word. Revolution is a subset of civil war. One side can occasionally struggle nonviolently, but revolution always entails massive violence. When this definition is ignored, it leads to the t-shirtification of revolution. Like sex, revolution becomes commodified, a thrill to be sold. At least in America, that's how things played out. In other parts of the world, 1968 really was about revolution. The week I started college, 300 people, mostly university students, on a peaceful protest were gunned down in Mexico City. That same week, a Catholic civil rights march in Derry, Northern Ireland, was violently suppressed. The incident is usually taken as one of the starting points of the Troubles. I don't mean to be cynical about the U.S. There was plenty of bloodshed in those years. The state was not shy about defining the boundaries of protest with bayonets and loaded rifles. But protesting the war in Vietnam was far from revolution. I knew some good people who realized what revolution truly meant, and accepting it wasn't going to happen any time soon, made life-altering commitments to it anyway. The brightest English instructor at Antioch gave up what would have been a glittering academic career and moved down the road to Cincinnati 
and joined a radical collective in that most right wing of cities. A classmate went to work at a factory in Dayton and tried to organize a rank-and-file movement against the Union leadership. He was nearly beaten to death for his troubles. Another moved to Oklahoma and did Union work, his life intersecting with Karen Silkwood's. The former found his way to medicine, the latter to the law. They continued to push for change and work for the growing good of the world with unhistoric acts and live their lives faithfully hidden, lives of acceptance and patience. Revolution is a long game with a very uncertain outcome, and I wonder if those thinking of voting third party in order to bring the day of revolt closer have the courage for that commitment. That week in October 1968, when I started college, another 18-year-old was on the streets in Derry during the violence. By the time I graduated in 1972, he was living underground, a senior figure in the provisional IRA. When I met him in 1994, Martin McGuinness was decisively stepping away from those decades of violence. We met in an annex of a house on, I think, the Springfield Road in Belfast, used by Sinn Féin for meetings. It was the day the IRA finally declared a ceasefire, a major sticking point in the political negotiations that would lead, ultimately, to the Good Friday Agreement. Outside, the street was filled with Sinn Féin supporters, driving up and down in their cars, horns blaring. Some had makeshift banners proclaiming the war over. Others praised the IRA. Undefeated, McInnes's role in the IRA is still shrouded in secrecy, but at the time he was seen as the paramilitary group's public face. I was there to interview him, briefly, for NPR. The noise was intense, so we retreated to a grubby room in the back full of discarded boxes and old office furniture. I asked him the obvious questions, but I remember two things, looking at him and thinking, this guy is only three months older than me. McGinnis, unguarded and unsure, asking, How do you think we're doing? His question, and the way in which he asked it, was completely at odds with the image I had of him. To this day, Martin McGinnis will not discuss what murderous violence he may have committed while an IRA commander. On the few occasions I had seen him briefly at Sinn Féin meetings, he had perfected the Irish hard man death glare as an answer to any question thrown at him by the press. As we knew what he was rumored to have done in the past, it was a look one had to respect. I thought his question meant, how did I think Sinn Féin was handling the unprecedented attention it was getting? There were hundreds of journalists from all over the world in Belfast for the announcement. I also got the sense he meant himself, personally. How am I doing? He was taking the first step from revolutionary, or terrorist, you decide which, towards becoming a legitimate politician. He was like a miner trapped in a cave-in for a week, stepping blinking and disoriented into the daylight. It was a very human moment. He had hazarded his life on the violent overthrow of the existing order, the partition of Ireland, and now after twenty years was, by his actions, not his words, acknowledging that had been the wrong tactic. He was taking the first giant step towards legitimate politics. It wasn't just him. A whole community had followed his lead, lost many lives, and now somehow had to be convinced that the sacrifice had been worth it. That day, at the end of August 1994, I felt the need, 68er to 68er, to assure him he was doing just fine. The words were awkward, 
and the conversation was never finished. A Sinn Féin press officer came for him. The interview was over. Today, McGuinness is Deputy First Minister of Northern Ireland, a straight electoral politician. A united Ireland is still his ideal, but he has opted for the world of impure compromise that is the foundation of genuine electoral politics. I have interviewed others my age as they came up into the daylight of mainstream politics from the revolutionary underground. Meles Sanawi of Ethiopia was one. Each time I had the same sense of awe and respect. While we spoke of revolution in America, swigging beer and withholding our votes, these people had walked it like we talked it. In Mele's case, he actually did win a revolution, after living 18 years in the bush and waging a guerrilla war. And I wonder if the younger people who are hoping to bring the revolution a step closer have the patience to engage in what they are asking for. When you're 20, can you conceive of what 20 years in the future really means? I couldn't. Can you imagine what two more decades of failure and fear and uncertainty will do to you? Are you capable of looking honestly at yourself, your class background, and frankly assessing your ability to survive and live in failure? And I wonder if young Bernie supporters have the patience to build something new. I don't think it was revolutionary, but it was incredibly radical for a Brooklyn Jew to move to Vermont in that revolutionary year, 1968. Vermont in those days was not a place of outlet stores and cosmopolitan refugees from New York City. It was a Republican state, rural, a place where socialism was a Jewish thing, and there weren't many of my people among the Green Mountains. It took more than a decade for Bernie to figure out how to win an election there. Then it took a few more defeats before he figured out how to step up to the national level, more than 20 years after he moved to the state. And I hope that the reported one-third of voters, 18 to 29, who say they will vote for a third-party candidate are thinking about these questions. Most of all, I hope they are asking themselves if they know the difference in price between T-shirt revolution and the real thing.